This is William Ammerman, author of The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. William Ammerman, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I'm great. I've got my cocktail and I'm ready. Well, what are you? what is your cocktail? This is the last word. Uh, seems very literary, and uh, it's a, uh, a an old prohibition cocktail made from equal parts of gin, maraschino liqueur, chartreuse, and lime juice. And I will say that chartreuse is a is a vicious substance. It is fifty five percent alcohol, so one hundred and ten proof, green and herbal and these monks make this stuff and uh, it's got quite a punch so when you mix it all together you get this very complex drink that balances sweetness and sour with a lot of herbal notes and uh, it's extremely flavorful it's 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 quite a puzzle for your palate it's like a rubik's cube for your for your taste buds Um, it's delicious is there any chance we could get the recipe and put it on this episode's show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com (laughs) absolutely you looked like quite the mixologist before we started recording i saw this really rather well stocked uh, liquor cabinet uh in in your room there and then i remembered oh that's right he's a michigan grad (laughs) and i bartended in los angeles for a little while right out of college so um it's not a coincidence that i keep a well-stocked liquor cabinet so bartending in la after graduating from michigan was that from an alcoholic standpoint, was that sort of a step down? Uh, that was <laughs> right, right. That was not quite to the standards that we had in Ann Arbor, uh, but uh, still fun. Well, you should know that uh, I have interviewed four authors on the Marketing Week podcast who are Michigan grads. And I uh, was so excited about this, and all four books were absolutely terrific. And I introduced all, the, all four of you, and I hope that you guys have kept in touch. It's you. Tracy Eiler, co-author of Aligned to Achieve, and uh, Ethan Butte, co-author of Humanize Your Business, and Louis Gadima, author of Bullseye Marketing. So, and even in Authors in Quarantine, all four of you have showed up. It seems to be, you all seem to be very reliable in that regard. (laughs) 
I'm, I've got a son who is at the University of Michigan right now. Oh, and, uh, they they are obviously you know doing remote distance learning, and so they've recreated the Michigan logo as the University of Michigan at Phoenix. <laughs> Now, for the uh, for the Phoenix uh, distance learning. Company. Yes, yes, yes. Now let's not be hating on those Phoenix folks. But it's uh, pretty funny though. I, I, you know, when you're paying seventy thousand dollars a year to go to uh, an online learning company, it's uh, it's kind of a uh, little little strange to be yeah. uh, to be sure. And that's why I've heard that next year could who knows what's going to happen, but next year could be the mother of all gap years because a lot of families are saying, "Wait a minute." <laughs> We're going to pay $70,000. Is that for the full academic year? Well, that's including travel and, you know, if you add in all your expenses. And, and alcohol, your, right. Right, and, and your alcohol. We don't want to pay that for you to sit there at a computer. So there's a lot of people that are rethinking things. So, you know, healthcare and education are just two amongst the many categories that this uh, whole pandemic is making people sort of uh, rethink. Now, before we go much further, uh, last week I published, last Friday, I published episode 283. You were on episode 246 in September 2019. So for new listeners, tell them who you are and what you do. So um, I wrote a book about marketing in the age of artificial intelligence. And uh, professionally, I've spent two decades as a uh, a marketer and a digital advertising executive. I've got a lot of experience uh, managing billions with a B uh, of ad impressions that are delivered through digital devices like your mobile phone. And um, I've done uh, postgraduate work in artificial intelligence at MIT. And I wrote the book to really help people understand what is changing about the world of marketing and conversely, how the world of marketing is changing us. Um, we're living through a, a period of this pandemic. And of course, it's causing us to rethink things like telemedicine and distance learning. Um, and I actually address those topics in the book because uh, these technologies that are driven by machine learning, by natural language processing, increasingly afford us the opportunity to interact with machines, to have those machines collect data about us, and then use that data and interpret that data to find patterns um, in aggregate. And that's very useful in a number of areas. Of course, we're all talking about uh, disease control right now. Think about the possibility for tracking the movement of a disease by aggregating data about people's purchasing behaviors. In the book, I tell this anecdote it was originally published in New Yorker magazine, and uh, you know the the Target stores had set out to figure out when a woman was pregnant based on the data in their system, and they could actually determine uh, when a woman was pregnant based on changes in her shopping patterns, and uh, they were successful at it. It's kind of an amazing thing. Well, if you extrapolate, you can do the same thing with mass patterns of purchasing behavior across populations, and if you see changes, you know I, I don't know what those changes might be, but you can imagine, you know, suddenly there's a run on thermometers or, you know, vitamins. everybody runs out and buys vitamins or something. You could start to see that you could potentially apply artificial intelligence to track the movement and emergence of disease hotspots. Um, and that's actually what uh, you know, a lot of people have been working very hard on is applying this technology to track COVID and uh, and figure out, you know, where it's moving, where it's emerging, where it's shrinking and, you know, where we flatten the curve and where it's, uh, um, you know, an increasing threat to the population. So um, 
kind of prescient and uh, fun to have written the book in time to, you know, put it out there um, where people could start to understand how this technology is uh, is working. But let's get back to William Ammerman. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about the book. Enough about the book. Let's talk about William Ammerman. Okay. Your favorite movie is Blade Runner. What does that <laughs> tell us about William Ammerman? Um, I like uh, I like the cinema noir genre of uh, you know kind of uh, science fiction. So if you if you look back at my favorite movies, that's top of the list. But I also like uh, Casablanca, and I um, you know I think that if you look at some of the you know the movies that I enjoy watching more than once, you'll see a pattern of these kind of um, dark, sexy uh, you know very heavy atmospheric movies with lots of rich cinematography and great script writing. And uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm about in, in movies. Well, and you could argue that in the 1940s or the 1950s, that really was the high point of cinema. Yeah. People forget that Casablanca was actually produced during world war two before we knew the ending. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, the ending of the movie Casablanca leaves us with, you know, the dead Nazi and uh, the, the French lieutenant and, and uh, Humphrey Bogart um, in partnership uh, to send off uh, the uh, French resistance fighter um, to continue the, the war effort. And, you know, what's amazing about that is if you really put it into perspective, People didn't know how the war was going to end. People didn't know whether or not we were going to be victorious. And uh, and so um, when you appreciate that uh, about Casablanca, it really, you know, kind of changes your perception of the movie. If the Nazis, of course, had won, um, they might have uh, rounded up the usual suspects uh, on their own in, you know, the people that had made that movie, hold them responsible for kind of anti-Nazi propaganda. So uh, there's a bit of, uh, you know, there's a bit of risk involved in making that movie at the time. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled and glad that it was made, uh, but I, I do appreciate the fact that the people that made that movie were uh, gambling a little bit on history with their lives. You know, I knew that, I think it was like 1943 and when they made the movie, but I had never, I never uh, made that connection that it, it still wasn't quite resolved. I mean, uh, the Normandy oh. invasion hadn't even happened yet. Oh yeah. Before the battle of the bulge, before Normandy. I mean, it, it was, a uh, it was up in the air and, uh, and you know, there was no sure thing about how that thing was going to end. And, uh, you know, when you put it in, into that perspective, suddenly it, it changes the uh, changes your perspective on that movie significantly. Interesting. So, the Invisible Brand. Please take us back, and this will delight our listeners in Scotland. I'm rich and I'm dead sexy. Tell us the derivation of the name of your book. <laughs> Well, Adam Smith, uh, your your Scottish connection there, um, wrote The Wealth of Nations back in 1776. And in that book, he identified this force in the market economy, the invisible hand. And the invisible hand, of course, is uh, that force that says that people acting on their own for their own self-interest will produce value for society as a whole. And, um, and that you know, has been uh, the basis for Western economics as a science uh, ever since. Um, so he he was uh, the first 
economist um, and the first person to really formalize it as a uh, as a science as a, a course of study. And when I was writing uh, the book, I still hadn't come up with a name and. Um, I was discussing the fact that it was this kind of market force and um, somebody actually said out loud, it's kind of like the invisible hand. And I thought, hmm, that's very clever. What marketing term rhymes with hand? And I thought, you know, the invisible advertiser, the invisible corporation, the invisible. And then, you know, it hit me between the eyes, the invisible brand, and that just stuck. And uh, everybody seemed to like it. And, uh, and we went with it. Well, it certainly works. And I guess uh, another way that would be much more clumsy and doesn't rhyme at all, but it's like a heat-seeking missile, either the invisible hand of uh, economics or the invisible brand. So explain how this artificial intelligence and machine learning appears to be working invisibly. Yeah, so we're used to brands that, you know, uh, the big bullseye on the front of the Target store or um, the Coca-Cola can. Uh, but what's really happening in the world of branding is that brands are talking to us invisibly through persuasion. And um, in the book, I lay out an argument that there's really kind of four trends. And I'll lay them out very briefly. Um, the first trend is, of course, that we are gathering huge amounts of personal data about individuals and we're customizing the digital experience for that individual. You might see um, different uh, uh, sports uh, data. If you went to, you know, uh, a sports website, um, you follow different teams than I do. You're going to see those scores populate first. Um, and your you, Facebook feed is going to have things about why can't we right. beat uh, Ohio State? <laughs> why? Right. Why? Why was the last time 2011? I, I'm sorry, but I interrupted. Yes. So I'm going to just ignore that and keep moving. So the, um, the the challenge with the personalization of information is that people don't necessarily appreciate that what they're seeing is very different what, than what the next person is seeing. And so they're consuming information that puts them into a bit of a filter bubble where they're seeing things that are based on what they like and their interests and what keeps them engaged and coming back to the web. And other people are seeing different things. And in, in some cases, we're consuming information that is you know diametrically opposed. And so we, we wonder why we're so polarized. But anyway, personalization of information is the first trend. The second if we look at persuasion, it has become a science. With digital data, we can actually A-B test different messages, and we can figure out which messages are working for which people to persuade them to purchase airplane tickets or to, uh, you know, buy their masks online for, you know, protecting themselves against COVID. So we can test messages at a very formal level. And the third trend is that we're using machine learning to help us with both of those, with the personalizing sites and, and persuasion. And the fourth is that we're now talking to our machines using natural language processing. So to, to bring that all together, you're talking to a machine that is designed to learn how to persuade you using your own personalized data. And that's a, a game changer. We've never been at such a vulnerable state where the information that we provide to the digital environment is used almost against us to persuade us and change the way we think using our own, um, you know, kind of internal processes, our own psychology. And, um, and I brought that all together and I said, what is this? This is technology 
that uses our own psychology. So it's psychological technology, put that together and you get psychotechnology. And so the book, um, you know, is really about how artificial intelligence is allowing marketers to recapture some lost ground where they, where the, the, you know, the uh, power swung in the favor of the consumer with the, the proliferation of the internet. Marketers are now gaining back a little bit of that power by being able to find uh, tools in mathematics, artificial intelligence, to use that to persuade consumers, uh, you know, toward their own ends. And that's good in some cases if you're doing disease management and you're persuading populations to um, wear their masks and uh, stay healthy and wash their hands, that's that's great. Um, if you're using it to control populations and uh, uh, suppress freedoms and uh, and and do you know totalitarianly naughty things. Um, I think we can all agree that's dangerous. And and so finding the right balance uh, where we are um, uh, allowing for the good while prohibiting the bad is uh, part of what we talk about in the book. It's trying to figure out how do you strike that balance. Yeah, I learned a lot about that, and I learned about you know the example I think you had in there is of uh, China was really amping up their. Uh, tracking of everyone was it was it there yes. you talked about it's almost like a credit score now based on the government surveillance yes and, and it's uh but it's more it, of a behavior it, scale i find it personally terrifying um it's probably the you know the one thing in the world that keeps me up at night is the misuse and abuse of of this technology um there's a, a for those fans out there uh, who have ever watched the Black Mirror episode um, where they use social credit scores to deny uh, the woman, you know, uh, a flight on a plane and uh, she goes to a wedding and uh, there's a bunch of uh, uh, bad things happen to her because her uh, her social credit score has been declined. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a, a kind of pop culture reference, but in reality, that is in fact underway in uh, communist China. And so um, the communist Chinese have created a social credit score in which they can actually give you points for behaviors that they find positive and they can re retract points or uh, detract points when they find that your behaviors, if you're critical of the party, et cetera, are negative. And of course, the, the terrifying consequence of this is that individuals um, who are, uh, you know, have lower scores find themselves unable to purchase transportation. They find themselves denied opportunities for better housing um, and even access to, uh, you know, staple goods like toilet paper and soap and food. So uh, the ability to apply social credit scores across a society, it becomes a currency. Um, and so what you're seeing is a gradual shift away from a fiat currency in which individuals can uh, keep dollars stashed under their mattress and spend them anonymously towards a society in which the credit score becomes the currency and the government controls your finances down to you know the nth degree and ultimately can control every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to William Merriman. <laughs> now, where are you uh, in quarantine? Is it at your home in North Carolina? Yes, I, uh, I've been in my home in North Carolina. I spent 10 weeks behaving very well. Um, and then I, you started talking to me. 
and then and then gradually i uh, i will readily admit i started to venture forth as things opened up i actually went to a restaurant uh last week i did you have to sit uh, outside it was outdoor seating and um we uh enjoyed ourselves but we didn't stay terribly long stayed about an hour and left um long enough to have uh, two beers and and dinner. Um, but it was the first meal that we had eaten out in 10 weeks. Um, so we started into quarantine in early March and uh, have just recently uh, started to, to loosen up a little bit. But I've spent a lot of time in the house um, and I've put on uh, 19 pounds. I call it the COVID-19. Um, and uh, that has, you know, been a little depressing. I didn't realize that when you're bored out of your mind, you can eat an awful lot of Oreos. Um, and that's, a, that's apparently a real thing. But, but if you're just eating Oreos, you're not really doing it right. You got to deep fry them. I mean, come on, you're in North Carolina. Get with wow. it. Cameron. Yeah, they do sell those at the state fair. I, uh, I, I, I admit that I have had a deep fried Snickers. That's as far oh, as I man. can go. It was gross. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was delicious, but it was gross. So don't, don't do that. I would love to have one before I die. And I say that because it would probably kill me. <laughs> yeah, right. It's <laughs> it's the last drop of cholesterol poisoning that your body can handle. That's right. That's right. So did suddenly all your a lot of your plans have to change? Did you have to cancel trips or anything like that? Uh, yes. Um, so I had a, uh, a European tour for my book um, that got canceled. Uh, I was very unhappy about that. We had um, five countries, uh, 10 cities over a course of two weeks, and uh, we were traveling to universities. I have had to substitute that for um, volunteer guest lectures at places like uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, these are uh, online lectures where I've been um providing guest lectures to students who are also in quarantine. Uh, but uh, I've done them at Auburn University. I've done them at Long Island University, at uh, Michigan State. I even did one at uh, Michigan Bucharest. State. Wow. Did they yes, know that they, you were a Michigan grad? <laughs> I didn't emphasize that. Oh, okay. Um, Bucharest ASE, which is the Academy of Science, Economic, uh, Economic Sciences in Bucharest, which is the top uh, business school in uh, Romania. So uh, it's been a real uh, great experience at some level, but I did miss out on the opportunity to travel around Europe for a few weeks with uh, some academics uh, and visit a lot of universities. So I'm hoping that at some time in the future, we can resurrect that tour, which was scheduled for April. Uh, But uh, it was something that I actually uh, lost out on and I was uh, quite disappointed that uh, that didn't happen when do you think you might be able to do it like in another year or two boy i you know if i had a crystal ball i'd tell you but uh it's hard if to, you had a crystal ball you wouldn't be talking to me that's true. <laughs> um possibly next april uh i think springtime in europe is beautiful and um you know being able to travel around in april in europe uh, would be ideal and uh, perhaps uh, you know, if we get this COVID thing under control, it would be safe and, uh, people would be back out attending lectures in person. Uh, but I, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of things that, uh, are unknowns that we have to resolve between now and then. Well, when all this happened, was there anything that really, I guess, either surprised you or, uh, perhaps inspired you? Oh, I, you know, I think that, um, it's been a little, uh, 
stressful for everybody. Um, and I think that that's showing. I think society is frayed around the edges. I, I, I noted somewhat humorously last week that a, a tweet went viral when the, uh, uh, you know, the SpaceX capsule went off. Somebody tweeted out, congratulations to the astronauts who left Earth today. Good choice. <laughs> I and, saw that. <laughs> and I have to, I have to say, you know, when I read that, I thought, boy, I'm, that's true. And I'm feeling nostalgic for, you know, global warming. Um, you know, when, when all we had to worry about was melting polar ice caps, uh, that was, you know, something that, uh, uh, you know, really struck home with me that, you know, of all the things that we used to worry about, you know, things have been replaced by much more um, stressful and urgent and serious and day to day. And, you know, it's just one thing compounding another. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people are experiencing this kind of, um, you know, COVID cabin fever, if you will. Well, let me ask you a question that I'm sure at least a few people might be uh, asking, because I've been asked this. How is, okay, we talk about, you know, we, we, we talk about William Ameren, we talk about Blade Runner, we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data. Is all that really here? Um, sort of back to the uh, old Palmolive TV commercials where Madge the manicurist was explaining that somebody was already soaking in it uh, when she was uh, doing their nails. How is AI and machine learning and all that, I mean, how is it, how is it being used now in marketing? Well, I think uh, one of the most obvious that is um, current and, you know, in the present tense is supply chain management. Uh, there's been an uh, absolutely global supply chain disruption and um, supply chain management that is powered by artificial intelligence is how you are starting to get toilet paper and masks and, and uh, hand sanitizer back into your grocery store. And um, balancing supply chains across an entire planet is something that machines are better adept uh, at doing than, than humans. And so, you know, one example is if you used hand sanitizer today, that was a, probably a function of machine learning, natural language processing, and, and artificial intelligence at work um, in the supply chain. So that would be a really quick example where you are already soaking in it, right? Your hands are literally rubbing hand sanitizer on your hands that, uh, you know, moved to your house and, and became part of your possessions as a result of uh, some revolutionary, recent revolutionary changes in supply chain management. And so when um, I log into Amazon and it says, welcome back, Douglas, here are some marketing books for you. Is that, is that it at work too? Absolutely. You know, the world of the algorithm where, you know, people like you read this book or um, people who liked this song also liked this song. You know, we're, we're soaking up recommendations from our digital devices and the recommendations that we're being given are delivered to us very purposefully. And, you know, if we look at a list of 10 songs that you listen to, we can get your age within about a year. And that's extraordinary. Um, when you start to think about the fact that the, the music you listen to identifies your age that precisely, um, it's startling. And, um, you know, when we look at, you know, someone's behavior on, on, uh, Spotify or, uh, you know, Pandora, we know a lot about who you are based on the music that you consume. Um, so this is uh, pervasive and it's getting better and better. And we're being able to um, build 
individual profiles, psychological profiles about individuals based on the patterns of their media consumption, the patterns of their uh, searches online. And even, you know, when you uh, delve down into it, the, you know, the, the, types of things that they express an interest in um, identifies their personality. So what is one thing that you hear all the time about, you know, AI, machine learning, uh, things, big data, things like that, that you would like to debunk? I mean, what's a myth that you, (laughs) or a misunderstanding you always hear that you would like to debunk most? Well, um, you know, there's a joke at the beginning of my book that artificial intelligence is, uh, you know, the the art of making um, computers act like they do in the movies. And, oh, right. Uh, and <laughs> so, that, yeah. you know, people frequently see things in the movies and somehow they assume that's already here. You know, are we already in a world in which we can, you know, the thought police can predict crime and, um, and, you know, can we reprogram the brain and, you know, is it, are we living in the age of, of total recall and the matrix? Um, and the reality is that we're not there yet. Um, we are not at what we call general artificial intelligence. We are at um, kind of very specific cases um, where uh, artificial intelligence is used in very specific and narrow applications. So the difference between general artificial intelligence is uh, general artificial intelligence would be um, intelligence that rivals or surpasses human intelligence across the broad spectrum of you know what we think of as human intelligence. Narrow artificial intelligence is applying AI and machine learning to a very specific problem. Um, I gave you an example just a minute ago of uh, the global supply chain. So um, if you're trying to figure out how to balance the risk that, uh, you know, petroleum will be choked off in the Persian Gulf and that we need to make certain that, you know, we can get petroleum from uh, other sources uh, on short notice, that's supply chain management at a macro level. And um, when you start to look at the complexity of that problem um, and making sure that you have sources for all of your different products and all the supplies that you need to manufacture your products, um, if there's a disruption in one place, that that consumption can be redirected and that you have suppliers in other parts of the world um, that can provide it. And a computer is much better at um, figuring out that mess than an individual with a slide rule and, you know, uh, a spreadsheet. So um, there are examples where uh, narrow applications of artificial intelligence are hard at work today. Um, but the the thing I'd like to debunk, if there is uh, something to debunk there, is that there's a machine out there that has general artificial intelligence, um, which, you know, kind of rivals human intelligence. That doesn't exist yet. Uh, it's been something that uh, this kind of uh, chimera that people have been you know chasing for, you know, decades. Um, and I imagine that it will emerge in our lifetimes, um, but we're not quite there yet. When your episode of uh, the, on the Marketing Book Podcast was played, I remember at the very beginning, we played Hal yeah. <laughs> from right. 2001. Let me put it this way, Mr. Amer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. 
we are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. And you were explaining that it's it's not it's not there. That's that's not what you need to worry about. But William Aaron, one of my favorite comedians, is John Mulaney, and my kids love him too. Why did John Mulaney make an appearance in your book? <laughs> so Mulaney picked up on something which everybody has experienced, which are these captcha, um, these these uh, little. Um, computer programs that force you to identify stop signs or um, cars or bridges to prove that you're a human. And, you know, the joke that he, you know, really got well is that we spend a lot of time uh, online convincing robots that we're not robots. And I, I think it's really funny because the truth is that in you know, in my lifetime, we've gone from thinking that, you know, that someday we might uh, be able to, you know, kind of emulate human speech or human intelligence uh, through computers, and that we've now reached the point where we have to actually prove that we're human to computers. Um, and that's a that's really ironic. And, and what's even more ironic is that um, it's easier to identify a human than to identify a robot uh, online. Um, if you think about it, you know, you just ask somebody a simple question like, you know, some very complex math problem that takes a human being, you know, five minutes to solve and a computer can solve it in, you know, five milliseconds. Uh, you know, right there, you can, you know, a computer can figure out which, you know, who, who a human is. But can a human determine whether they're talking to a robot or a human, I think humans are at the disadvantage here, um, that it's going to be increasingly difficult for humans to tell who they're talking to. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's uh, a big part of the invisible brand. Because I'm not really a human. This is all an algorithm. I, I hate to break it to everyone after five and a half years of doing this. No, I'm kidding. If it were an algorithm, it would be much better. But... <laughs> You know, it's funny you say that about the conversations in the chat. The other day, well, actually today, I published the interview with your fellow Michigan grad, uh, Tracy Eiler. And I was on her website, which is insideview.com, because they just released some research uh, about sales and marketing alignment. But I was looking for something on their website, and uh, a chat bot came up. And, you know, I've had various... Uh, Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. You know, it's not because the chatbots are wrong; it's just the way they're set up. What they do at Inside View is they'll say, "We're we're real humans waiting to answer your questions," and they show pictures of three of them. And I think it might even include their first names. And I saw that, and I thought, "Oh, oh, well, then maybe I will use the chatbot." I didn't need to. I found what I was looking for, but I just thought that was that was interesting because we're already getting suspicious of the efficacy of some of this. Uh, you know, AI-driven uh, chatbot stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, the reality is sometimes the chatbots get us to the right information faster than the humans do. So I, I think you might get a split verdict on whether you'd rather yeah. talk to a human or a chatbot. At some level, the chatbots might be better. If I was, you know, trying to figure out whether I have a broken bone, um, you know, we might reach a day when, and I think we're practically there, where image recognition um, is so good uh, that you might actually trust the machine more than the, than a radiologist to determine whether that's a break or a, a tumor or what that is. Because 
of course, a machine can look at you know, literally billions of examples that they can learn from, whereas a human might see only a few hundred thousand uh, in their entire career. And, uh, and you know, just the volume of uh, data that the computer can learn from is vastly greater than what an individual human can. And that that's powerful. So that's a positive application of this stuff, but it also should cause you to pause and think about, you know, who would I trust more with my, you know, uh, diagnosis of my, you know, radiology exam, a, a machine or a human? And that it's, uh, I, I think that's troubling at some level and it causes people to go, hmm, that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't hmm. really thought about that. Well, William Ammerman, if you could kind of dial it back on the radiologist, because my wife's a radiologist and uh, <laughs> she's, you know, going to be she's working still for a better few more than years. the machines this week. <laughs> We got at right. least one more week. Yeah, so don't be hating on my on my radiology folks. Um, <laughs> so, at any rate, well, listen. What is besides going out to this restaurant and eating outside and having two beers? What has William Ammerman been doing to keep himself entertained, other than eating uh, Oreos? Um, I have found myself reading a lot of uh, classics that I should have read a long time ago. I just oh. finished uh, The Snows of Kilimanjaro. And uh, I I don't know why I was drawn to that. You know, maybe it was uh, wanting to be in a very far off place and, uh, you know, traveling very far away. But uh, like your the trip Snows to Europe? Kilimanjaro, right, um, is about this uh, writer uh, named Harry who's dying of gangrene. He's out uh, stranded on a safari in Africa uh, because their truck engines burned out and he scratched himself on a thorn and he's sick and, um, and he's, he's literally, you know, stranded in the outback of Africa, dying of gangrene. And, you know, he, he makes a comment, which uh, of course Hemingway writes about him and he says uh, he knew at least 20 good stories from out there and he had never written one. And it, you know, the guy was kind of reminiscing about all of these adventures that he'd had in his life, but he had never committed any of them um, and written them down. And that made me nostalgic. It made me think of, you know, the great adventures that I've had in my lifetime that are worth sharing that I haven't written down. So it was inspiring at some level, depressing at others. And it was strangely um, prescient for the time because here this guy is isolated, you know, with this illness and, and, you know, in a very destitute situation. And of course, uh, no spoilers here. You know, if you, if you haven't read Hemingway, I'm just going to give it away. Uh, but you know, he, he dies there and he dreams at the very end that he's, you know, flying off to the, the snowy peak of Mount Kilimanjaro. And, um, I think that's kind of, uh, you know, both depressing, uh, but also, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking about death and I think a lot of people are, you know, pondering, um, you know, eternity. And this is a, a, a time of soul searching and deep reflection for a lot of people. So it was it was fascinating to read, you know, that particular Hemingway at this particular time. And uh, I'm glad that uh, I took the time to do that. Well, we may have a copy of that at my house here somewhere. I know my wife went through sort of a Hemingway phase like about two years ago where she was rereading a lot of that. I'll have to see if I can pick that up. But it's true. I've heard of this all described different ways. But one of them is it's a great reset where everyone's rethinking what they're doing, what they had planned on doing. And they're rethinking even business, simple business decisions like, why were we doing that? <laughs> and how this has been an accelerant for changes that were probably needed to happen anyway. 
Well, I, I mentioned one uh, earlier, which is, you know, here I am a, a, a father paying tuition at a big league university where it's costing an absolute fortune um, to send my kid to Michigan. And, you know, I think that I'm not the only person that's questioning whether the $70,000 a year investment in sending kids off to college is worth it and whether there might not be a more efficient, practical, and um, even better means of education. And I think that, you know, the Band-Aid's been ripped off pretty hard recently where people are, you know, using distance learning and they're trying to figure out, you know, what are the shortcomings? What are the advantages? And uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for universities to continue to justify their costs if we reach a point where um, online learning becomes an effective tool, uh, and that's that's a that's a game changer for a lot of big universities. And if you're in the higher education space, you're going to hate hearing me say that. But I even talked about that in the book um, because you know AI powered distance learning is an opportunity to take advantage of the individual's learning style, figure out what makes that individual tick, how they learn, and then customize and, uh, and remediate based on tactics that that are more effective for them. So if they're a, a visual learner, or if they learn by listening, or if they learn by doing, that you remediate and help them in their own kind of native uh, learning style. And that's something that artificial intelligence would be very good at, which uh, you know a professor standing in front of a classroom of 300 kids is not able to do. There is a person I've been following a lot lately, listening to his podcast and reading. Uh, his name is Professor Scott Galloway. He teaches at NYU, and he's a, an investor and a tech guy, and he has been amplifying what you just said, 10x. And he said, look, and I'm, you know, I teach at a college, but he, he, he's completely transparent saying, look, this is about to get disrupted like nobody's business. <laughs> so William Ehrman, you're not alone. You might want to listen to his, uh, his new podcast. He, he talks about that and uh, a few other things, but he's really trying to explain to everybody how that is going to be disrupted. And years from now, people are going to be talking about how this was, Again, the term I used earlier, a big accelerant for uh, change in not just academia, but, but, but any kind of learning. So, William, I am going to include on your show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com that clip of John Mullaney uh, on YouTube. I've got it, and, and I've used it before. It's really funny, but it's the one where he's talking about the, the CAPTCHA boxes. And if possible, I'd like to include your recipe for the drink you're having right now. And otherwise, uh, are there any other book ideas floating around in your head? <laughs> oh, um, my problem isn't ever a lack of ideas. My problem is uh, having too many and then not executing. Uh, it drives mm. my wife crazy. She, uh, I, I, you know, torment her with all of my brainstorms. And then she's always asking me six months later, what happened to that idea? So um, it would take us an entire another episode to go through um, all the things I would like to be oh, writing well, let me about. Go get another drink and then I'll come right back. <laughs> and we'll come back um, tomorrow, listener. Right. No, I'm but the I, same I, way, I William. I, I, I'm full of ideas as long as I don't have to implement them. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm guilty too. Yeah. All of us. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you and uh, for you to join us here on this uh, special limited time series of the Marketing Book Podcast called Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. And I hope that you and your family and everyone in your world continues to stay safe and, and healthy. I feel the same about you. Uh, thank you. And you're doing a great job with this. Uh, I've actually followed the uh, progression of your podcast. And I think this is absolutely a stroke of genius. So good work.